Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 46 of the show. It's uh, definitely a busy episode for you this week. It's been a couple weeks since we've had one. We have uh, Stanley Cup Finals that are uh, wrapping up, or about to be wrapping up here soon. Uh, An NBA Finals that's about to get started. And of course, in the PGA Tour, we have a couple of golf tournaments to recap along with a preview of this weekend's tournament. so And uh, plenty of other news to discuss in Around the Island as well. So definitely a busy episode. We're going to get started in the PGA Tour. A couple weekends ago was the Travelers Championship, and that was at TPC River Highlands, which is in Cromwell, Connecticut. It was a par 70. Distance was 6,841 yards. This course, uh, TPC River Highlands, it's been on the tour schedule for 38 years, and it has recorded two of the lowest rounds in PGA Tour history. Uh, The lowest round in PGA Tour history was shot by Jim Furyk in 2016. It was a 58, and that was at the 2016 Travelers Championship. And then uh, Patrick Cantlay also shot, uh, 10 years ago, shot the lowest round by an amateur with a score of 60. So this course has been known to produce some very low scores And it turned out to be a damn good tournament, Uh, pretty epic. There was an eight-hole playoff to decide this thing, which is the second longest playoff in PGA Tour history. The playoff was between Harris English and Kramer Hickok. Now, they both finished at 13 under par uh, at the end of their 72 holes, so they both went to the playoffs. Harris English ended up beating Kramer Hickok after eight holes. Um, They played... The par 4 18th hole six times, and then they also played the 17th hole twice in those eight holes. But it was the par 4 18th that uh, English birdied in order to win on the um, sixth go-round of that hole. But other than that, I mean, Harris English did play pretty well all weekend, shot a Paris of uh, three under 67s and a two under 68, and then came out Sunday and had a five under 65 to get into that uh, playoff with Kramer Hickok. Now, Hickok, he shot lights out in round one, came out with a 7-under 63, followed that up with a 69 and a 68, and then turned in a 3-under 67 on Sunday, including a late clutch birdie on 17 to make that playoff possible. But third place was Mark Leishman at 12-under par, He was another guy who saved his best for Sunday because in his first three rounds, he only shot a pair of 69s and then a four under 66. So he wasn't really in contention until Sunday when he came out and shot a six under 64 to grab solo third. Now, fourth place was Abraham Anser at 11 under par. 
Just like English and Leishman, Answer played his best golf on Saturday as well. He actually shot two over in Thursday's opening round and then came out with a couple of solid 66s uh, before closing with a 5-under 65 on Sunday to grab that solo fourth. He's been playing really good golf over the last probably three months, we'll say. Uh, this is multiple top five finishes, and um, he's looking really good heading into the final major of the year here in a couple of weeks. But my picks to click for the Travelers Championship, I gave you three of them like normal. The first one was Scotty Scheffler. Uh, he had come in ranked number 18 in the world, playing really well. Hadn't finished any worse than uh, T8 in uh, three of his last four starts. Uh, he missed the cut in one of those last four starts, but three of his last three starts that he had finished in, he hadn't finished any worse than T8. And uh, he led the U.S. Open in uh, strokes gained putting, so his putter's been coming on. So I like for him to come out and do well, but he did not. He finished at three under par, which was tied for 47th. So, which was weird because he was actually sitting near the top of the leaderboard after the first two rounds. He was at six under par uh, after Friday's second round, but then just fell flat on his face over the weekend. He went one over 71 on Saturday, two over 72 on Sunday. So, Scheffler did not click for me. Second pick to click at the Travelers was Patrick Cantlay. I just mentioned him a while ago. He was the current FedEx Cup points leader at the time, and uh, he followed up his uh, memorial win with a T15 at the U.S. Open. So he's been playing pretty well. And, of course, I mentioned that historical round that he had as an amateur 10 years ago here at, uh, at TPC River Highlands. He uh, shot a 60, which was the low round by an amateur, which is still the record to this day, low round by an amateur. And he's finished uh, three times in the top 15 of this event uh, since 2018. So recently he's been playing well here. I like for him to click, and he did that for me. He finished at 8 under par, which was tied for 13th. He really wasn't flashy. Uh, shot a pair of 2 under 68s in the opening and closing rounds and then went 4 under uh, and even par in between those. So an 8 under T13 is a click. My third pick to click was Bryson DeChambeau. He uh, stumbled a little bit late in the U.S. Open, had a chance to repeat his U.S. Open victory, but he didn't. And uh, he's really played well here at the Travelers. Uh, since 2016, he's all, made all five cuts that he's, that he's uh, been a part of here. And he's got uh, three consecutive top ten finishes in this Travelers, 2018, 19, and 20. So I liked for him to certainly click for me. Uh, and he did. Uh, his score was seven under par, tied for 19th. So he didn't didn't really have a chance to win this thing, but he did finish pretty well uh, inside the top 20. So, of course, the threshold is top 25. So I did click on DeChambeau and Cantlay, but I missed on Scheffler. So two for three at the Travelers Championship. But this past weekend's tournament was the Rocket Mortgage Classic, which is at the Detroit Golf Club. Uh, in Detroit, Michigan. It's a par 72. Distance was 7,370 yards. So this was one of the first few tournaments uh, last year in 2020 to uh, to get going after the PGA restarted from the COVID pause. Uh, this was one of the first tournaments on deck. D uh, Bryson DeChambeau was your winner by three shots last year over Matthew Wolf. Now, interesting thing about this golf course is the Detroit Golf Club, according to shot link data, 
is the flattest course on the PGA Tour schedule. So uh, you're not going to find a course that is more conducive to guys that like to uh, beast the ball a long way. Uh, now, the problem is, is we didn't really have a great field for this one. We had a few top-name players. Of course, Bryson played. Um, uh, Phil Mickelson made his uh, Rocket Mortgage Classic debut, actually, in this one. Has never played in this tournament, uh, but he came out for this one. Now, Hideki Matsuyama, the Masters champion, also played, but he had to withdraw after the first round because he tested positive for COVID. So that was kind of an interesting development there. We'll have more on that on the COVID testing process here and around the island. But the tournament itself, we ended up having a damn good tournament. Uh, Another multiple playoff hole week for us this week. Of course, last week at the Travelers, it went eight holes. Well, this past weekend at the Rocket Mortgage Classic, it went five holes. So your playoff this time actually featured three golfers, Cam Davis, Troy Merritt, and Joaquin Neiman. Now, the first playoff hole, uh, Neiman bogeyed, and Davis and Merritt parred. So that eliminated Neiman uh, right off the bat, which more on that bogey for Neiman in a second. So the final four playoff holes just were Cam Davis and Troy Merritt. And uh, Cam Davis ended up coming out on top with a birdie on that fifth playoff hole. So he got his first career PGA Tour victory. Now, Davis played pretty good golf all weekend. He shot a pair of uh, four under 68s to start and then a pair of five under 67s in the final two rounds. So he had an epic finish, though, on Sunday. He uh, Sunday's final round, he closed with an eagle on 17, which was a chip-in from the greenside bunker. Just absolutely unbelievable chip for eagle. And then birdie on 18, and that just got him into the playoffs. Then he had to do work in the playoffs as well. So uh, great weekend for Cam Davis, first career victory on tour. But Troy Merritt, he was uh, him and Joaquin Neiman finished T2, uh, both losers in a playoff hole. They both were at, oh, all three of them were at 18 under par after 72 holes. But uh, Merritt, he had a pair of uh, 67s in the first and third round and a pair of 65s. In the, I'm sorry, he had a pair of four under 68s in the first and third rounds and a pair of five under 67s in the second and fourth rounds. So he shot pretty low all weekend. Now his weekend was highlighted by a hole-in-one on the par-3 11th on Saturday. Just an absolute beautiful shot. Uh, you knew he was going to be in contention after that for sure. Now Joaquin Neiman. He went super low on Thursday. He went 7-under 65 on Thursday. Followed that up with a 3-under 69 Friday and then a pair of 4-under 68s over the weekend to get into the playoff. Now, I mentioned that bogey in the first playoff hole that he had. Well, that was his only bogey of the entire weekend, uh, the entire tournament. Joaquin Neiman became only the third player in PGA Tour history to complete 72 holes bogey-free. And go figure that his first bogey uh, wasn't until the very first playoff hole when he needed a a par or a birdie. So uh, tough luck there for Neiman, but he still played outstanding. Tie for fourth. uh, T4, there was Alex Noren and Hank Lebiota, both at 17 under par. Now, Alex Noren was a complete non-factor until Sunday. 
Uh, he was only at four under heading into the weekend. He did shoot a five under 67 on Saturday to move up the board quite a bit. But Sunday, he came out and just roasted the course to the tune of an eight under 64. Just catapulted himself up to the top of the leaderboard. And he was actually the leader when he finished his round. Uh, he finished before uh, Merritt, Davis, and Neiman got done. So Noren was the leader in the clubhouse at the moment, but it wasn't enough to hold off those other three guys from getting to 18 under. But uh, nonetheless, just an outstanding Sunday for Noren. Now, Hank Lebiota. I had no idea who this guy was uh, coming into this weekend and still really don't know. <laughs> but here he is finishing T4. He, uh, he had four different scores this tournament. He shot a 67 70, 66, and 68, which is all under par. It was all good enough to earn him a solid T4 finish. Now, we did not have a an episode before this tournament went down, so I ended up, I did make three picks to click uh, that uh, I'll get into here just briefly since we didn't discuss them. My picks to click for the Rocket Mortgage were Will Zalatoris, Jason Kokrak, and Patrick Reed. Now, with Zalatoris, uh, he finished dead last at 77 with a score of even par. Nothing else to say except he finished dead ass last. Now, he was actually sitting at six under heading into the weekend. So after his first two rounds, he was at six under. And then Saturday and Sunday came out and just went two over and four over to get back to even par. So I did not click on Will Zalatoris. But Jason Kokrak... um, I picked him because this course is very similar to Colonial Country Club where he uh, just won about a month and a half ago. But uh, Kokrak did all right. He finished at 14 under par, which was T12. He opened up with a pair of 69s, followed those up with a 65 or a 67 rather, 5 under, and then closed with another 3 under 69 to finish solidly inside the top 25. So I did click on Kokrak. My final pick to click for the Rocket Mortgage was Patrick Reed. Um, He had only started here once, finished T5 back in 2019. And uh, I like for him to continue that success here. And he didn't play bad, but he didn't play good. Um, He finished at 10 under par, which was T32. So just outside that top 25 threshold, uh, he... Reed was actually only sitting at three under heading into the weekend rounds. And then Sunday came out with a five under 67 to kind of really get himself up towards uh, the upper half of the leaderboard. But uh, I did not click on Reed. So I went went two for three at the Travelers Championship and one for three at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. So uh, not not good, not bad, but... uh, like I said, uh, I'm you know the Rocket Mortgage is always cool to me because I'm from Detroit, and so watching those guys tee it up in Detroit is uh, is always pretty special for me. But this weekend's tournament is the John Deere Classic, which is held at TPC Deer Run in Silvis, Illinois. It's a par 71, distance is 7,268 yards. This event uh, was not played last year. It was a COVID casualty uh, from the pandemic, and it has not been played since 2019. Now, this course is designed to gather birdies in bunches, so uh, I would expect another 
very low scoring tournament somewhere in the ballpark of uh, of again about 15 to 18 under like we saw this past week in Detroit now I don't want to sell this tournament too hard here but this field of players is just absolutely horrible Uh, it is not good all of the top flight players are already overseas and they're either playing in the Scottish Open this weekend over there on the European Tour or they're taking an extra week off to prepare for the Open Championship, which is going to be next weekend in England. So uh, all the big-name players are over there. there there's a, just a couple of players ranked inside the top 30 or 40 in this field. And uh, believe it or not, there are 15 golfers playing this weekend who are eligible to compete in the Open Championship. And there is one final spot uh, available to uh, participate in the Open Championship this week, and that's going to go to the highest, highest ranked player uh, that fin- basically the highest finishing player that isn't already guaranteed a spot in the Open will get to go to England next weekend. But the field is so bad that I almost did not want to make any picks to click. But since it is a staple of the show, why the hell not? Let's throw it out there. I'll give you some picks to click for the John Deere Classic. The first one I'll give you is Russell Henley. He's ranked number 54 in the world. And he was in contention at the U.S. Open a few weeks ago. He had, the, I believe he was a co-54-hole leader at the U.S. Open and then just uh, fell on his face in that final round, sent him down to a T-13 finish. But he came back, and uh, his next event was the Travelers' Championship, and he finished T-19 there. So played pretty well a couple weeks in a row. He was actually, Russell Henley was the runner-up here in 2019, last time this thing was played. And in that tournament, he shot a career-low round of 61 in that tournament, uh, which is great. I mean, that's that's 10 under par. And he currently sits 16th on tour in adjusted scoring. My second pick to click is Sung J M. He's ranked number 27 in the world. Uh, he is the second highest ranked golfer in the field. He's coming off a T8 at the Rocket Mortgage Classic, where all four of his rounds were sub-70, piled on the birdies last weekend in Detroit, which is going to come in handy because, as I just mentioned, uh, TPC Deer Run is set up for birdies and bunches, and Sung J.M. Uh, has a history of making lots of birdies uh, in bunches. So that will play nicely uh, into into his hand. He actually finished T26 here back in 2019. So uh, last time they played, he was he was pretty uh, pretty good in this at this course. But um, so I like Henley uh, to finish inside the top 25. I like Sung J M as well, finish inside the top 25. My final pick to click is Daniel Berger. He's number 16 in the official world golf rankings, and he's the highest ranked golfer in this field. So I have the two highest ranked golfers in the field as my picks to click. Not real clever, but it is what it is. Uh, In Daniel Berger's last 10 starts, he's got to win three other top 10 finishes to go along with seven top 20 finishes in that same time frame. He's been just uh, the epitome of consistency over the last 17 months, and there's no reason to think that that will not continue this week at the John Deere Classic. So, uh, I believe he's going to be playing in the Open Championship as well. So this will be a good tune-up for him. 
uh, for that one. But yeah, Russell Henley, Sung JM, and Daniel Berger are my three picks to click this week for the John Deere Classic. I will probably tune in to a little bit of this tournament over the weekend, maybe Saturday uh, and Sunday afternoon for a little bit of the coverage, but I probably will not be uh, tuning in to it uh, like I do most other tournaments. But uh, hopefully we get some good competitive golf uh, in preparation for next week's Open Championship. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League, and we'll do a playoff update there. We are in the Stanley Cup Finals. And before we get into that matchup, we had two games to discuss that we left off on last episode uh, in the conference finals matchups between the Tampa Bay Lightning and the New York Islanders. We had discussed the first six games in that series, so we pick it up in game seven. It was win and in for either Tampa Bay or New York. And Uh, Tampa Bay pretty much dominated that game, game seven. They outshot the Islanders 31 to 18, uh, only managed one goal though. The the final score was, was one to nothing, but Andre Vasilevsky for the uh, lightning best goalie in the world, stopped all 18 shots thrown at him by the Islanders and his shutout sent the lightning to their second straight Stanley cup finals. Now, This was Andre Vasilevsky's fourth consecutive series clinching shutout. So the last four series that Tampa Bay has won, the first three this year and uh, the last one last year, I guess the Stanley Cup Finals last year, have all been shutouts. That's outrageous. Uh, The dude, like I said, best goalie in the world, no doubt about it. Um, But in the other conference final matchup between the Vegas Golden Knights and Montreal Canadiens, We had covered the first five games on last episode, so we'll pick it up in game six here. If Montreal, they were up 3-2. If they won, they advanced to the Stanley Cup Finals, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, It was a good game. It went back and forth. Vegas and Montreal were actually tied after the first period, but then uh, rookie Cole Caulfield put the Montreal Canadiens up in the second, and uh, Vegas didn't get their answer until early in the third. The game would go into overtime, but just as we've seen with all the other overtime games this year, it was a quick overtime. Uh, Montreal's Arturi Lekkonen sent the Habs to the Stanley Cup Finals with an overtime game-winning goal and just a couple of minutes into overtime. So Montreal won that series in six games, and Tampa Bay won uh, won their series in seven. I had predicted Tampa in seven and Vegas in six, so I did get one of those two right. So that set up the Stanley Cup final between the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Montreal Canadiens. Now, when this matchup was first done, when I first found out about it, I wrote down Tampa Bay in six games, meaning I think the Lightning are going to win in six games. Well, there's already been four games played in this series, so we'll go over how it's gone down so far. The first game uh, was all Tampa Bay. Uh, They got out to a 2-0 lead before Montreal even uh, finally was able to answer. And then Tampa Bay had three goals in the third period to put this thing out of reach. Uh, They took game one, 5-1. Nikita Kucherov, two goals and an assist all in the third period. Just a huge win for the Lightning in game one. Uh, Game two uh, was same end result. Uh, Not quite as uh, high scoring, but... Scoring didn't get started in this one until uh, the second period. Uh, Lightning scored the first goal just over six minutes into the second. 
Montreal's Nick Suzuki ended up tying the game just four minutes later, but right before time expired in the second period, Tampa Bay's Blake Coleman, he was on a two-on-one with Barclay Goodrow and got a pass from Goodrow. He went full extension, Coleman did, and shot the puck past Carey Price on a full extension. Just a beautiful goal, right with like two seconds left. So that uh, put the lightning up, and in the third period, uh, Montreal Canadian defenseman Joel Edmondson made a critical error late in the third period, leaving the puck behind the net. But uh, Tampa Bay's Andre Palat was able to get it and sneak it in short side on Carey Price. That put the Lightning up 3-1, to one, which was what the final score was in that game. Lightning went up 2-0 in the series, took care of both of their uh, home games. Sh- uh, the series shifted over to Montreal. Now, interesting thing about Montreal, they still only have 3,500 fans in attendance, all right? So the, the government has not allowed more than uh, 3,500 people to enter, whereas Tampa Bay Amelie Arena was completely packed. But So anyways, Montreal gets uh, home ice. This is kind of a must-win for them. You don't want to go down 3 nothing against Tampa. So they they did outshoot the Lightning in Game 3, 35-30, but they just could not manage to pull even. Uh, Tampa Bay outscored Montreal two to one in every period for a final score of six to three, and a big win, three-game lead in the series. A couple of interesting notes about this game three win. Uh, so, Tampa Bay Lightning defenseman Victor Hedman, uh, All-World defenseman, he scored in game three for the Lightning. And with that goal, he became the first player in NHL history to score a goal in all 12 calendar months of the year. Now, I don't know that that's ever going to be done again because, of course, we had the bubble last year in uh, July, August, and September, which is when, you know, we don't normally have hockey during those months. So that's how he was able to accomplish that feat. But uh, shy of another uh, season-shifting pandemic... Uh, again, uh, I don't see that record ever being tied or broken, so that's pretty neat for Victor Hedman. But uh, it was announced after the game that, uh, of course, Tampa Bay's, after the Game 3 win, Tampa Bay's family and friends, they wanted to uh, fly to Montreal to be a part of any possible Stanley Cup winning celebration that would take place after a potential Game 4 victory. Well, the Canadian government shut that down and said, nope, you're not allowed. So uh, Tampa Bay's family got told no. So that brings us to game four, which was uh, on Monday night. And of course, it was do or die for Montreal. You're down 3 nothing. You're on your home ice. And they came out ready to go. Uh, they grabbed the lead late in the first period on a Josh Anderson goal. Uh, remember that name. And they hung on to that for almost an entire period because Tampa Bay didn't score... Uh, to tie it until very late in the second period. So uh, about halfway through the third period, uh, Alex Romanoff for the Canadians got his first career playoff goal to put the Habs back on top. But that lead only lasted a few minutes because uh, Tampa Bay would end up tying it. Game went into overtime, and in overtime, Josh Anderson for Montreal. Told you to remember the name, here he is. Comes flying down the left wing side, kind of threw a one-handed pass towards the front of the net. Cole Caulfield was there to kind of jam it. Uh, he didn't really get all of it. The puck 
bounced off Vasilevsky and sat there. Anderson had stopped, came back to it, and shot it as he was falling. Snuck in under Andre Vasilevsky's arm, hit the back of the net, and came out just as quickly as it went in, but it still counted. Montreal got on the board in this series, and uh, they trail three games to one. Game five uh, is in a couple of nights here in uh, Tampa Bay at Amelie Arena. So as it sits now, the series is three to one Tampa Bay. Now I predicted Tampa in six. I don't see this series getting past five games. I I don't believe that Tampa loses game five uh, on home ice. I think they know that if they lose game five, they have to go to Montreal for game six and anything can happen. So I think Tampa Bay is going to take care of business in game five. But we will discuss that on next week's episode because that is where the series is at at the moment. But been very entertaining. I know the series is 3-1, but uh, a lot of good hockey being played. This is a showcase of two fantastic goalies between Andre Vasilevsky and Carey Price. So uh, we will see how it turns out here. Game 5, like I said, I believe is Wednesday night this week. So we'll have to see how that goes. But uh, stay tuned on that because we'll discuss the uh, end of the series on next week's episode. But move on to the National Basketball Association. Do a playoff update there. We got a lot to get into for the NBA. Uh, The conference finals had just started uh, on last episode, so we'll go ahead and get into those. And the Western Conference was the Phoenix Suns and the Los Angeles Clippers. I predicted that the Phoenix Suns would win the series in seven games. We covered the first two games on last episode, so we'll pick it up here in game three. Phoenix was up 2-0, right? So this was a must-win for the Clippers. They uh, trailed at halftime, but had a monster third quarter. Took the lead, wouldn't let it go. Uh, Paul George led the way, 27 points. So L.A. won 106-92. Problem for the Suns in this one was Devin Booker and Chris Paul each only had 15 points. That is not a winning recipe for the Suns. So it was 2-1 Phoenix in the series after the three games. Game four was still in L.A. Another important one for the Clips. And it was a rather low-scoring game by Western Conference standards. We're used to those high-scoring games. Uh, the final score was 84-80. to Phoenix ended up coming out on top in this one. Devin Booker had 25 points for the Suns. DeAndre Ayton, 19 points, 22 rebounds in this one. Just a massive game for the big fella. And Paul George for the Clippers, he ended up with 23 points and 16 boards in that one. But uh, the Suns won the low-scoring affair. They took a 3-1 to series lead. Game 5 shifted back to Phoenix. Uh, put, of course, the Clippers were on the brink of elimination. And, man, they came out swinging. Uh, they led after every single quarter. They had a ridiculous night from Paul George, who had 41 points, 13 rebounds. Just single-handedly carried the Clippers to a 116-102 victory to get the Clippers back within a game. Devin Booker, 31 points in the loss for Phoenix. Uh, So 3-2 was the series going back to L.A. for game six. And in that game, of course, if the Clippers didn't win, they're eliminated. And uh, they came out just flat on their face. I think somebody forgot to tell the Clippers that uh, that the game was uh, an important one because they didn't lead after any quarter. And they got outscored by 13 points in the fourth quarter. Phoenix just completely pummeled the Clippers 
by a score of 130 to 103 as the final. It was Chris Paul's turn to put up a 40-burger. Chris Paul had 41 points. Devin Booker had a mild 22 in the win for the Suns. And the Clippers' uh, leading scorer was Marcus Morris in their last game of the season. He had 26 points. So the Suns ended up winning the game, or you know, winning game six, clinching the series in six games. So I was right to pick Phoenix winning the series. So Phoenix is your Western Conference champion. Now we'll move over to the uh, Eastern Conference Finals. That featured the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks. I picked the Milwaukee Bucks to win in six games. We covered the first game of that series uh, on last week's episode. Kind of a lot of drama unfolded in this series. So we'll pick it up in game two. Uh, of course, the Bucks lost game one on their home floor. So Atlanta had a one nothing series lead. So after that disappointing game one, the Bucks came out, and uh, you really can't lose both at home. They dominated. Uh, they won 125-91. Giannis had 25 points. Drew Holiday, 22. Trey Young for the Hawks only had 15. Again, kind of like we saw in the Eastern Conference, when your leading scorer only gets 15 points, it's not going to be a good night for you. So that evened the series. Took it back to Atlanta. Uh, game three was in Atlanta. Good game, back and forth. Uh, but the Bucks dynamic duo of Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton, just too much for the Hawks to handle. Milwaukee ended up taking game three, 113 to 102, to take a two to one series lead. Giannis, man, that dude, 33 points, 11 rebounds. But Chris Middleton, that has been the X factor all playoffs for the Bucks. He had 38 points and 11 rebounds in game three. For the Hawks, Trey Young did what Trey Young does. He had 35 points, uh, but the story of this game came out after the fact when it was uh, released that. Uh, Trey Young had a deep bone bruise in his heel, in the heel of his foot. So his status for game four was in question. So we get to game four. The Hawks are down 2-1 in the series. And before the game, it was announced that Trey Young it was sitting out due to his foot injury. But that didn't stop the Bucks from having bad luck of their own because after playing only 24 minutes in the game, Giannis Antetokounmpo came down after jumping up for a rebound, came down very hard on his left knee. It hyperextended his knee. He was down in pain on the court, writhing around. He had to get helped off the court. So that ended his night. Uh, but the Trey Youngless Hawks were the team that went to work. And uh, Lou Williams and Bra- uh, Boyan Bogdanovich both had over 20 points for the Hawks to get Atlanta a surprising 110-88 to victory. That's a huge win. They won by 22 points uh, just to even the series. I mean, that was that was a huge game for Atlanta. And then reports came out. Of course, everybody was concerned that Giannis blew his knee out. It looked very bad. It looked like he probably tore his ACL. But news came out the next day that uh, Giannis had no structural damage in his knee. Um, but he would miss some time. So the Bucks dodged a huge bullet there. So game five, back in Milwaukee, series tied 2-2. Bucks were without Giannis Antetokounmpo, and the Hawks still did not have Trey Young, who was sitting out for that foot injury. But the story of this game was Milwaukee's starters. Uh, the Bucks cruised to a 123-112 victory. Uh, 
All five Milwaukee starters in this one, uh, they combined for 111 out of the Bucks' 123 points. Uh, that's outrageous. Uh, four of the five Milwaukee starters scored more than 22 points, which, again, that is high-level production from your starters. Brooke Lopez, the center, out of nowhere, dropped 33 points for the Bucks, And then, of course, Chris Middleton had 26, Drew Holiday 25, but you expect that from those two. And in this game... The Bucks moved to 10 and 0 in the postseason when Chris Middleton shoots better than 40% from the field. So that's the key. If the Bucks want to win, Middleton needs to shoot plus 40% from the field. But for the Hawks, Boyan Bogdanovich had 28 points uh, in the losing effort. So series went back to Atlanta. Uh, of course, a must win. The Bucks were up three games to two. You look for game six here. Giannis Antetokounmpo was still out with a knee injury, but the Hawks got Trey Young back in action. So you think you give the edge to Atlanta in Game Six, but uh, really the Bucks knew that it was a series clinching win or a series clinching victory. They ended up winning uh, big. Uh, one eighteen to one hundred seven was the score. Chris Middleton thirty two points. Drew Holiday twenty seven. Trey Young again. He only had fourteen points in his return. Uh, the Hawks did get twenty one points off the bench from Cam Reddish, but it was not good enough. Um, Milwaukee won the series four games to two, which is exactly how I predicted it. So I did correctly predict both conference championships in the NBA. Uh, the Hawks are a good young team, man. Uh, I can definitely see them hanging in and around those Eastern Conference Finals, uh, possibly the NBA Finals, for the next several years. But we'll take a look at the NBA Finals. Just do a quick preview. Uh, as of this recording, there has not been a game played. I do believe that Game 1 of the NBA Finals is tonight, Tuesday, July 6th. But uh, we'll take a look at the matchup. The Western Conference champion Phoenix Suns against the Eastern Conference champion Milwaukee Bucks. Now, I my official prediction is the Phoenix Suns in six games. I think that uh, they have the healthy roster. I like the Bucks roster better. I like the combination of Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday better than I do Devin Booker and Chris Paul. The problem is is that Giannis probably, he's not playing in Game 1. They've already announced that he's sitting out Game 1 of the NBA Finals, so he will not be playing. Who knows when he's coming back? I would assume it's probably Game 2, possibly Game 3. But either way, Giannis is not going to be 100% for this series, so you have to give the edge to Phoenix because Devin Booker and Chris Paul have just been absolute monsters in the playoffs. They both have had 40-point games. Uh, They both routinely drop over 20 points. They feed off of each other. Chris Paul is one of the best point, true point guards of all time. Uh, I just like DeAndre Ayton. uh, He's an up-and-coming big man that can rebound, uh, and he's he's all over the floor. I just like the Suns. They have home court advantage as well in this. I think if you're looking for a, a tiebreaker instead of a coin flip, I think home court would be it. Phoenix has that, so... 
Uh, Give me the Phoenix Suns to win the NBA Finals in six games. Uh, This is the first NBA Finals appearance for the Suns in 28 years, and it's the first for for the Milwaukee Bucks in 47 years. So it's been a hot minute since either of these teams have been in the NBA Finals, so it's truly anybody's series. But uh, I like both teams. Both teams have great players, but uh, give me the Suns for the home court advantage and the fact that their best players are healthy. So that I think health is going to be the main thing because Giannis Antetokounmpo is just simply a question mark at this point. But, uh, yeah, give me the Suns and six, and we'll check in on that on next week's episode because we should have uh, several games played in this series by that time. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball real quick, just do a standings update. We're not quite at the All-Star break. As of this recording, we just have, uh, I think all teams have a few more games before the All-Star break. But we are uh, over halfway through the baseball season. Every team has played uh, more than half of their games that have uh, that would get them to the 162 uh, on their schedule. So um, we'll, you'll, we'll have some all-star conversation in, uh, in the Around the Island segment. But we'll start off in the National League. And the National League East, the division leader at the moment is the New York Mets. They've pretty much been up there all season. They're 44 and 37. Jacob deGrom has still, we're halfway through the season, and his ERA is still sub one. Uh, it currently sits at 0.95. He gave up three runs in his last start, which is uh, about double what he had given up in his previous nine starts. So the dude is still otherworldly. Uh, he had 14 strikeouts the other night on, uh, I think, 88 pitches or something ridiculous like that. I mean, the guy's just just give him the Cy Young now uh, and name him the All-Star Game starter because uh, he's truly the best pitcher in baseball. Uh, second place, the Washington Nationals. They have come back from the dead. Uh, they have been in last place in this division for most of the season. They're uh, four games back of the Mets as it sits at this moment, 41-42. and 42. Uh, they've gotten huge production from Kyle Schwarber, who hit like 12 home runs in like an eight-day span. Got into the All-Star game because of it. Uh, shortstop Trey Turner the other day just hit for the cycle uh, on his birthday, which was the third time in his career that he's hit for the cycle. Uh, that Juan Soto's getting his bat going. That team's coming alive. Uh, I like them uh, a lot. I, I They were my prediction uh, before the season started to win the NL East. Uh, but that that team is is coming in hot right now. The Atlanta Braves are third at 41-43. and 43. They're only a half game back of Washington, four and a half back from the Mets. Philadelphia Phillies at 40-42. and 42. And the Miami Marlins are 36-47. and 47. Nine games out of first. Uh, I think they are probably uh, eliminated at this point. Not mathematically, but uh, just simply the eye test. Uh, and the National League Central, the Milwaukee Brewers, 51 and 35. They've won eight out of their last 10, looking really good. They have a six game lead on the Cincinnati Reds, who are 44 and 40. Reds have won five in a row, seven out of their last 10. Now, the Chicago Cubs, 42 and 43, uh, is their record. They have lost 10 games in a row, they are eight and a half games out of first. Prior to that 10-game stretch, they were winning this division. They were leading this division, tied with the Milwaukee Brewers. And since then, the Brewers went 8-2, Cubs have gone 0-10. 
they are quickly, this division is uh, in trouble because the Reds, they, they have two all-star starters. Uh, they're only four and a half, or excuse me, they're six games back of the Brewers, and the uh, Cubs are eight and a half back of the Brewers. So the Cubs need to turn things around quickly because they are taking on water. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals somehow still are sitting down here in fourth, 42 and 44. Pittsburgh Pirates 31 and 53. They are uh, one of the worst teams in baseball, record-wise. And the National League West, this thing, uh, this is turning out to be probably the best overall division in baseball. Uh, the San Francisco Giants, they are still atop that division at 53 and 31. Now, they only have a half-game lead on the Dodgers, who are 53-32 and 32 currently. Dodgers have won nine out of their last ten. They're playing some damn good baseball, trying to get back into this thing. San Diego Padres are four and a half games back of the Giants, just a, uh, four games back of the Dodgers at 50-37. and 37. Uh, they're, They've only uh, played 500 baseball in the last ten, but uh, they're still a good team. Colorado Rockies 37 and 48. Uh, the only thing they got going for them is that they're about to host the All Star game next week. And then the Arizona Diamondbacks 23 and 63. Uh, they've won twice in their last 10. They are by far and away the worst team in baseball record wise. So uh, they're going to be hanging out down there in the bottom of the NL West all season. Flip over to the American League, the American League East. Boston Red Sox, 54-32. and 32. They've won nine out of their last ten. They're playing really good baseball at the moment, too. They have a four-and-a-half game lead on the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, who sit at 49-36. and 36. The Toronto Blue Jays are 43-39. Uh, and 39. They're nine games back of the Red Sox, but they, uh, they have a great young team, and uh, they're starting to get some good pitching, which is uh, makes them even more dangerous, so... We'll keep an eye on them. They were my preseason prediction to win the American League. Uh, the New York Yankees are in fourth at 42-41. and 41. They've only won three times in their last ten. There's talk that uh, GM Brian Cashman might blow things up there before the trade deadline. We'll see how it goes. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles, 27-57. and 57. They are the second worst team in the league record-wise behind the Diamondbacks. Uh, they are not going anywhere but last place. American League Central. Uh, this division has stayed the same for a while, at least the top half. The Chicago White Sox are f- up top at 49 and 35. They've lost three in a row, but they have a six-game lead on the Cleveland Indians at 42 and 40, who have only won once in their last 10 games, and they've lost seven in a row. So the, while the White Sox are on a little slide, the Indians are on a bigger slide. So that helps the White Sox. Third place, the Detroit Tigers, 39-46. and 46. Uh, They're on a three-game winning streak. They've won seven out of their last ten. Minnesota Twins, they have come up from last place, uh, barely, but they're 35-48. and 48. And then in last place, the Kansas City Royals, 35-49. Uh, and 49. They've only won twice in their last ten. So uh, they are now in the basement of the AL Central. Now in the American League West... Your leader at the moment, the Houston Astros, 52-33. and 33. Uh, They've won four games in a row. 
uh, they are looking really good. They're looking like the Astros from the past few years. It took them, it took them a month and a half or so to get going, but they are firing on all cylinders. Uh, the Oakland A's are three and a half games back of the Astros. They are forty-nine and thirty-seven. Now the Seattle Mariners, they're in third place at forty-five and forty. They are three and a half games back of the A's, seven games back of the Astros. Couple of interesting notes on the Mariners this past week. Uh, Mariners pitcher Hector Santiago was the very first player to be ejected for violation of the MLB's new foreign substance policy. Uh, he got caught having some kind of foreign substance on his uh, hat or glove and got ejected from that game, and he was also suspended for 10 games as a result of that. First player for that. Now, the Mariners' offense, uh, they have scored 47.4% of their runs via the home run, which uh, is by far the most in baseball. Uh, they have, It's almost 50% of the runs that they've scored uh, on the home run ball, and that's, that is outrageous. That's too dependent on the home run. But uh, fourth place in the AL West, the LA Angels at 42 and 42, and then my Texas Rangers dead last in the AL West at 33 and 52. But again, uh, we'll have some all-star talk here and around the island uh, just shortly here later in this episode. But uh, baseball's all-star break is right around the corner, and uh, man, we always love the uh, Midsummer Classic. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that's where we do some quick news topics from across all of the various sports. Uh, Pretty informational stuff here, uh, so we'll get into it's kind of rapid fire stuff. We'll start off in the National Football League. The NFL uh, this past week announced they have fined the Washington football team $10 million as an organization, and that's as a result of the league's investigation into the team's culture. If you remember, I guess about a year or so ago, the owner, Dan Snyder, got into some hot water, and um, you know they had to change the name of their team and all that from you know, the Redskins to the Washington football team. So that whole thing, the NFL looked into all that, <clears throat> and they ended up fining them $10 million. Now the money is going to be donated to a charity. There's going to be no suspensions, no loss of draft picks, and no charges to anybody in the organization. So I guess they kind of lucked out there, but that's a hefty check for Dan Snyder to write. But some other NFL news, there was a surprising free agency release this past week. The Pittsburgh Steelers announced that they released six-time Pro Bowl offensive guard David DeCastro. Now, the release comes after DeCastro had informed the Steelers that he needs ankle surgery for the third time in his career. So it's a repeat injury. He hasn't gotten it fixed yet. Uh, Of course, we're about to start training camp here in a couple of weeks. So DeCastro's probably going to miss... Uh, the better part of the season, if not all of this season. So uh, DeCastro was non-committal on if he'd ever play again in the NFL. So I think Pittsburgh just decided to go ahead and release him. Now, DeCastro is actually one of six players, uh, the only offensive lineman out of this group, to be selected to the Pro Bowl in each of the last six seasons. So he has been a phenomenal foundational piece on that Pittsburgh Steelers offensive line. So immediately after releasing DeCastro, the Steelers announced that they have signed former Pro Bowl guard Trey Turner to a one-year contract. Now, Turner's battled some injuries himself, but uh, he is healthy at the moment. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League. 
And we had a trade that went down this past week, and it involved the Nashville Predators and the Los Angeles Kings. Nashville has traded forward Victor Arvidsson to the LA Kings in exchange for a 2021 second-round pick and a 2022 third-round pick. So to me, I think, I mean, I like Victor Arvidsson. He's a good player. Uh, He seems to be clutch in the playoffs. I'm glad he's getting out of the uh, the Central Division. I know the divisions are going to get back to the way they were uh, for this 2021-2022 season. So the Predators will be back in the same division, Central Division, which is what my Dallas Stars are in. So I'm glad to see Arvidsson leave the Central Division, trust me. But uh, I think the Kings got the better end of the deal on that. They're only giving up second and a third round pick for a guy that can come in and contribute right away. So interesting trade for Nashville there. But... Uh, We had a couple of coaching hires this past week. The first one involves the new expansion team, the Seattle Kraken. They have hired their first coach in franchise history, and it is Dave Hackstall. He was hired to be their coach. Now, Hackstall was an assistant for the Toronto Maple Leafs for the past two seasons, but prior to that, he spent four seasons as the head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. And from from 2015 to 2019, and he went 134 101 and 42. So just better than 500 in four years as the Flyers coach. Took him to a playoff appearance, but was not able to do anything. So an interesting hire for the Kraken. Um, They kind of had their pick of the litter, so to speak, of all the coaches that are available at the moment, and they chose Dave Haxtell. So we'll see how that works out. But a pretty neat little thing there for him to be the first coach in franchise history. The other coaching hires, the Arizona Coyotes. They hired... Andre Turigny. Now, Turigny has uh, coached the Ottawa 67s of the Ontario Hockey League for the past four seasons. He's a two-time OHL Coach of the Year. Now, he was also an assistant coach for Team Canada at the recent 2021 IIHF World Championships where Canada won the gold medal. So he was an assistant coach on that squad. Now, he also does have NHL coaching experience as an assistant coach with the Colorado Avalanche from 2013 to 2015 and the Ottawa Senators from 2015 to 2016. So uh, we will see how that does for Arizona. They are uh, in desperate need of something good to happen to them. They've kind of been at the bottom of the Pacific Division for several years now. But the biggest news, I guess, out of the NHL this past week was they um, Commissioner Gary Bettman had a press conference and announced their plans for the 2022 season and in that he announced that the Vegas Golden Knights in the city of Las Vegas is going to host the 2022 NHL All-Star Game. Now this will be the first uh, in-season NHL event hosted in Las Vegas since their inaugural season aside from their home games obviously but the first like uh, big NHL in-season event. So if you recall we haven't had an all-star game uh, in about a year and a half because of the, the the pause last year for COVID, and then we did not have one this year. So uh, this will be the first all-star game since the 2019 season, and w- what a city to have it in, too. I mean, Las Vegas, of course. Who hasn't been to Las Vegas? But um, that is a party waiting to happen. So that'll be a pretty cool scene there. Now, the NHL also announced that they are going to Recontinue the Winter Classic and the Outdoor Stadium Series. 
So the 2022 NHL Winter Classic is going to be January 1st, 2022, and that's going to be held at Target Field in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is home to the Major League Baseball's Minnesota Twins. Now, in that game, the Minnesota Wild are going to take on the St. Louis Blues. So that was the uh, that was supposed to happen this year, uh, but of course, with the uh, adjusted season, they moved it. So at least uh, Minneapolis gets to still host it next year. But the NHL also announced that the Stadium Series game, the 2022 uh, 2022 Navy Federal Credit Union Stadium Series game, will be February 26th. 2022 at Nissan Stadium in Nashville, Tennessee, which is home to the Tennessee Titans of the NFL. So the Predators are getting an outdoor game. Of course, the very last Winter Classic that we saw was January 1st, 2020, before COVID hit, and that was here in Dallas, Texas at the Cotton Bowl, featured the Stars and the Nashville Predators. And I was actually in attendance for that one, so uh, it was an awesome time. So Nashville gets to host a stadium series game of their own. But uh, we'll move over to Major League Baseball. And the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is quickly approaching. That is going to be Tuesday, July 13th. And it'll be held at Coors Field in Denver, Colorado. Now, the uh, MLB announced that they have created new jerseys for the players to wear in this thing and that the players are not going to be wearing their team jerseys. Of course, the home team would wear their white jerseys, and the visiting team would wear their road grays in the All-Star game. It's been a tradition for a gazillion and a half years. Well, MLB decided that uh, enough is enough, so they've come out with some new jerseys. So the All-Star game jerseys for the players to wear in the game. National League is home, so they're going to wear white. Uh... American League is road, so they're going to wear blue. Now, these jerseys, uh, you can Google a picture of them if you'd like, but just kind of to briefly describe them, the white ones, uh, well, both of them have red letters down the uh, left breast uh, vertically, I guess you could say, from the, from the shoulder down to the mid-chest. And they're red letters, um, you know, the first three letters of the, the city or team that you come from. So, and then it'll have the team's logo on that has a flag on the left shoulder, the All-Star Game logo on the right shoulder. And um, for the uh, home National League, they're they're white with uh, blue trim on the sleeves. And uh, for the road American League, they're navy blue jerseys with the red lettering and kind of a cream uh, beige trim. So interesting design there. Like I said, go look at it. It's hard to explain, but go look it up. Yeah, uh, because it's it's I'm a little disappointed the teams aren't wearing their actual jerseys. But the All Star Game starters and reserves have also been announced for that game, and I'll just go over the starters for both leagues. Uh, I'll go by position. So catcher, American League Salvador Perez, National League Buster Posey, first base, American League Vladimir Guerrero Jr., National League Freddie Freeman. Second base, Marcus Simeon is the American League. National League's Adam Frazier. Shortstop, American League, Xander Bogarts. National League, Fernando Tatis Jr. Third base, uh, American League, Rafael Devers. National League, Nolan Arenado. And your three outfielders for the American League are Teo Oscar Hernandez, Mike Trout, and Aaron Judge. And for the National League, 
it's Jesse Winker, Ronald Acuna Jr., and Nick Castellanos. Now, designated hitter in the American League designated hitter is Shohei Otani, who also got selected to pitch uh, in the All-Star game as well as a pitcher. So he is the Angels' Shohei Otani. He's taking Major League Baseball by storm. He leads the majors in home runs right now, and he's also got a sub-3 ERA as a starting pitcher, just out of control. He's the first player in Major League Baseball history to be named an all-star pitcher and position player. So congrats to him, man. That is quite the accomplishment. But the Midsummer Classic is always it's always fun to watch. Uh, it'll be a little different look this year with those new jerseys, but uh, still nonetheless, we have a home run derby to watch, a futures game to watch, and so it'll be, be a fun all-star weekend here coming up in about a week or so uh, there at Coors Field. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association. Some uh, coaching hires this past week and a half or so, uh, just like the NHL. Uh, But the first one deals with the Indiana uh, Indiana Pacers. They have hired former Dallas Mavericks head coach Rick Carlisle to be their next head coach. Now, Carlisle's contract is for four years and $29 million. So uh, Carlisle has previously worked with the Pacers uh, in, in a coaching role before. So I do believe that this was probably prearranged. Whenever Carlisle said he was leaving the Maverick, uh, Mavericks a couple weeks ago, I believe that he probably reached out to Indiana since they had a vacancy. So this seems to me it happened pretty quick. So it seems to me that uh, this was probably finalized before uh, Carlisle had even left the Mavericks. But the next coaching hire was, in fact, the Dallas Mavericks. They hired a new head coach and a new general manager at the same time because both of theirs, uh, of course, Rick Carlisle left, and then the next, uh, I think two days uh, prior to that, GM Donnie Nelson said that he was uh, leaving as well. So uh, he parted ways with the organization. So for the Mavericks, they were kind of in shambles. So the Mavericks hired Jason Kidd to be their next head coach, and they hired uh, Nike executive Nico Harrison to be their next general manager. Now, of course, you remember Jason Kidd. He was on the Dallas Mavericks 2011 NBA title team, and he actually has five years of head coaching experience already. He spent the last three years as an assistant coach for the L.A. Lakers, uh, but he also has been a head coach. Now, Nico Harris, he was a longtime executive for Nike. He's been there since 2002. He played collegiate basketball at Montana State University, and he was the vice president of uh, North America basketball operations for Nike uh, since 2015. So he was also, the Dallas connection is the fact that uh, Nico Harrison was instrumental in Luka Doncic's move from uh, Nike over to the Nike Jordan brand in 2019. So Harrison already has a pre-existing relationship with Luka Doncic, which is probably why that hire was in place. So I think Dallas is making the right moves to try and keep Luka Doncic in Dallas, of course, I talked about uh, last episode that Doncic is eligible for a max rookie contract extension, so he uh, is going to be uh, signing that, hopefully this offseason, to stay in Dallas. But the final head coaching hire in the NBA was the Portland Trailblazers. They hired Chauncey Billups to be their next head coach, and they gave him a five-year deal to do it. Billups has most recently been an assistant coach for the L.A. Clippers for the last couple seasons, and prior to that, uh, he's been an all-star player. He's been in the league a long time. He's an NBA champion, so he's got the pedigree to do it. Now, Billups was credited 
probably mostly for uh, while he was with the Clippers for helping Paul George get to L.A. and sign with the Clippers. Uh, developed a good relationship with him there. So I think the Trailblazers are in a little bit of a, a rebuild. I, I do not believe that Damian Lillard will be a Trailblazer next season. Uh, truthfully, I'm hoping that he's a Dallas Maverick. Uh, we'll see if we can make that happen. But I do not believe that they are going to keep Damian Lillard in Portland this season, but we shall see on that. Billups is a you know an up and coming coach, obviously, so maybe uh, maybe that'll keep Lillard in uh, Portland. But I I mentioned this when we were talking to the PGA Tour. We'll we'll slide over there real quick about the COVID testing protocols. And of course, Matsuyama tested positive after round one uh, of the Rocket Mortgage Classic, forcing him to withdraw. Well, this past week, before this Rocket Mortgage tournament got started, the PGA Tour announced that they're going to end their weekly COVID testing in late July. So beginning with the 3M Open in Minneapolis, players are no longer going to need to produce a negative test before being able to play. And this is regardless of vaccination status. So only players who are unvaccinated and have come into contact with a person who contracted COVID will be required to be tested, all right? So that basically eliminates most people from having to be tested, which is very good. I think that's, it's about time we start doing that, especially with golf. Golf is a social distancing sport by nature. The only person you're really close to is your caddy. So uh, I think that's probably a long time coming. But having said all that, the PGA also announced that the players are going to face strict COVID protocols in the Open Championship, which is our fourth and final major of the year, and that's going to be played in a couple of weeks. Now, it's before the three. Uh, it's before the three M Open, so these these new guidelines will not be in effect at that point. But this tournament, the Open Championships, uh, also known as the British Open, uh, it's in England, so we have to play by England's rules for that one, and the. This will be basically the strictest set of protocols that we have seen on the PGA Tour in a while. Players are not going to be allowed to share accommodations with other players. Uh, they're going to be required to undergo daily COVID testing regardless of their vaccination status. They're not, uh, players aren't going to be allowed to visit restaurants, pubs, or grocery stores. So they're going to be locked down to their hotel room. Basically, the golf course and the hotel room and they're going to have to eat by themselves. And this is really, this is all due to the strict um, English United Kingdom government oversight, basically. This has nothing to do with the PGA Tour. This is simply uh, the UK government stepping in and saying this is how it's going to be. So having put all those in, restrictions on the players, uh, they're going to open it up to roughly 32,000 spectators per day. So... That makes that's completely ass backwards. Okay, your players have to be under these finite restrictions. Can't do anything. Can't even eat with them. Can't even share a room with another player. Uh, but you can have thirty-two thousand people pack the uh, the bleachers for the open. Now, hey, I'm all for having fans in the stands, of course, because these major championships have shown us that uh, the tournaments are not the same unless you have fans. But I think it's a little ridiculous that you're going to make the players play by such tight rules and allow, you know, 32,000 people in there. But nonetheless, the Open is uh, my favorite major, favorite golf tournament of the year. It's very cool getting up early, super early to watch golf overseas. 
and uh, the whole experience is pretty fun. So if you haven't done that, we'll get into that here in a couple of weeks whenever we do the preview uh, episode on that. But we'll move over to the NCAA. We'll start off with some general news first. Huge news out of the NCAA, actually. Last episode, I talked about the court ruling in favor of a group of student-athletes uh, making money from their name, image, and likeness. And this week, the NCAA has come out and announced that student-athletes are now going to be able to pursue name, image, and likeness deals. Finally, officially, this is what we've been waiting for, basically. The new rules uh, allow NCAA athletes to profit by monetizing social media accounts, signing autographs, teaching camps or lessons, starting their own businesses, and participating in advertising campaigns. Now, athletes are also going to be allowed to sign with agents or other representatives in order to help them acquire endorsement deals. And as as you've seen already, there's been several athletes that have already um, announced they've had some endorsement deals and they're already starting to make money, uh, starting their own business, that kind of stuff, which to me, I've never understood why athletes uh, have not been able to make money off of their own Uh, name, image, and likeness, because the school gives them a free scholarship, and then their performance on uh, in their uh, athletic sport uh, helps bring the school money, whether it's, you know, win a national championship or sell merchandise because people like that player. Um, The school makes money off of those players, so I don't understand why the players can't uh, make money from an autograph or make money from an advertisement deal. Uh, that kind of stuff. But they're finally able to do that. So here we are, uh, some gazillion years later, you know, finally uh, making it happen. So that is huge news out of the NCAA. But we'll wrap it up real quick with some NCAA baseball. Last episode, I talked about the College World Series baseball teams on the men's side. And we have a College World Series champion, and that is the Mississippi State Bulldogs. They beat the defending champion Vanderbilt Commodores in a three-game series, two games to one. Uh, the Mississippi State actually lost the first game, but they won the last two games in a row to win their first-ever NCAA title. Now, the Vanderbilt team is loaded with talent. They have two top-five uh, picks in the upcoming MLB draft, and that's uh, pitcher Jack Leiter and pitcher Kumar Rocker. Now, Jack Leiter pitched in game one and was dominant, and the Bulldogs lost that game. Uh, Vanderbilt ended up winning, of course, because Leiter was dominant. Uh, Game two went to Mississippi State because they didn't start Kamar Rocker until game three. So game three comes around. Kamar Rocker gets the start for Vandy, and all he does is just get flat out rocked. Uh, Mississippi State got to him early and often, and it was like 9-0, I think, at one point. Just domination by the Bulldogs. Uh, Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott was in attendance for that. He's an alumni of uh, uh, Mississippi State, along with Rafael Palmero, legendary Texas Rangers player. But, uh, yeah, so uh, that was actually Mississippi State as a school. That was their first ever national title in any sport, men's or women's. So pretty cool moment for the Bulldogs. I'm sure Starkville was wild uh, that night when they won. But, uh, yeah, pretty Pretty neat scene there. Um, But that's going to wrap up the 46th episode of the Sports Island Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, We got uh, some, you know, golf is in full swing here. Baseball's uh, 
you know, at the All-Star break just about. So we will have a show for you next week, uh, but these last several have been pretty busy with all the playoff action we've had. But uh, stay tuned for next week, and we'll get you caught up on everything uh, in between. But until then, stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.